Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from heart-rendering service, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. The string of easy texts in Ephesians continues. Well, I want to start uh, this morning by uh, talking about somebody who will make it easier for us. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure uh, many of you have heard of before, uh, wrote a book called The God Delusion. It was a New York Times bestseller. It sold over three million copies. And in that book, Richard Dawkins said this, He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadiomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins. I'm 37 years old, and I think easily anybody plus or minus at least 10 or 15 years of me, if you were a Christian in 2006, 7, 8, you were aware of Dawkins, you're aware of the God delusion likely, and it's it's hard to um, deny that that the, the cultural moment of deconstructing faith has, is, is downstream in some way from Dawkins and his influence. It's probably not a direct connection that because Dawkins wrote that book that now we have this deconstruction thing going on, but there certainly is some connection. And part of the reason for that, part of the reason for that is ideas like this about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible sometimes gets a bad rap. The God of the Old Testament in particular. I mean, Dawkins is talking about the Old Testament here in that quote. Of course, we're in the New Testament here. But the God of the Old Testament in particular gets a bad rap. Matter of fact, my students right now, as we speak, probably later today, well before it's due, are writing a paper about the God of the Old Testament, uh, trying to navigate whether or not these sorts of what I'll call misconceptions about the God of the Old Testament, are in fact true. The world of the Bible was a brutal place, and God's actions in that world do not conform to the expectations of our modern sensibilities. To state the obvious, I disagree with Dawkins, but I am sympathetic to people who read the Bible and are periodically puzzled 
by what they find therein. In this series on reconstructing faith, we have to acknowledge that one of the many factors that sometimes contributes to to disillusionment are the many difficult passages in Scripture. We have one of those difficult passages to talk about this morning. So my goal for this morning is to accomplish two things. First, I want to address the at least potential controversy of this text. And then second, I want to deal with the instructions in this text. What can we learn? How, could, how should this text impact the way we live our lives? So as we get started, would you please pray with me? Father, I am uh, thankful for your word. I am thankful that it is a good, true, and sure guide to living the lives that you intend us to live. Uh, Lord, you created a good world, and we have broken it and made a mess of it. And Lord, you would have been well within your rights to leave us to navigate that world on our own. And yet by your grace and your spirit, you intervene proactively for our good. And one of the ways, Lord, you do that is with your word. So, Lord, help us to see this morning how this text is good news, a good guide to living a good life in a broken world. Lord, we love you, and we pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've got your Bibles uh, and you haven't yet uh, opened, please uh, open to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Of course, you can do that in your old-fashioned Bibles or in your apps. Ephesians uh, 6, verses 5 and 6 says, Bondservants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of our eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. If I'm honest... Just on the face of it, before we do any sort of careful reading and contextualizing, reading that text makes me uncomfortable. And I want to acknowledge from the outset that I am sympathetic to those of you who feel a visceral sense of concern when you read those words. This is not a light topic, and I think it's inappropriate to be simply dismissive of those concerns. That being said, I do sincerely believe that if we read this passage carefully, in its historical context, and in the context of God's project of redemption, we can not only rightly understand these words, but we can fruitfully apply this passage to our lives. So the first thing that we need to do, if we're going to get our minds and our hearts around this text, is to address the word and the institution bondservants. Many translations, depending on what Bible you have in front of you, have the word slaves. NRSV, the 1985 NIV, the NASB, even the earlier versions of the ESV. The ESV has been updated a few times since its first publication. The earliest version said slaves. So the way that we've got the text here on the screen Are the translators here trying to cover something up to make it more palatable, or is bondservants a legitimate translation? Is bondservants a good translation, or is it 
bashful wordplay? Is this PR on the part of the translators? What matters here is what Paul intends to say. This, by the way, is always what matters when you open the Bible or, frankly, listen to any text or read any text. What matters is what the author or speaker intends to say. That's the way language works. When you use it, when the biblical authors use it, anytime you read, what matters is what the author intends to say. So translators need to ask the question, what English word puts the idea in your mind that Paul intends to put in your mind? And here, Paul's slave is not modern slavery. What Paul has in mind is not the system of Western slavery in the 16th through 18th century, and it is not the slavery that persists in the world today. The ancient practice of slavery was not good or acceptable. Do not misunderstand me in saying that because it's not the same as what we have now, that somehow makes it okay. It wasn't. The ancient practice of slavery was not good or acceptable, but it is a far cry from the brutality of modern Western slavery. Simply put, what comes into your mind when you read the English word slave is not what was in Paul's mind when he uses the word doulos, the Greek word doulos, here. It's a bit complicated because there were several sorts of slavery in the Greco-Roman world, but it seems likely to me, based on what Paul says elsewhere, and we're going to look at what Paul says elsewhere on the topic, that he is essentially, though perhaps not exclusively, thinking about debt bondage here. And whatever particular sort of bondservant Paul has in mind, I think it's clear that Paul does not have in mind anything like modern Western slavery or, again, the sort of slavery that persists throughout the world today. Bondservants, I think, is a good translation. In my opinion, and I'll be honest here that now I'm just talking about my opinion, I have a high degree of confidence that Paul would not give this instruction so flatly to those who found themselves enslaved in the chattel slavery system of the 16th through 19th centuries on the American continent, nor would he give this instruction to the estimated 50 million people who find themselves enslaved throughout the world today. The bondservants of Paul's day found themselves entrapped in a bad, broken system, no doubt. But that system was not the systems of our day. So, for that reason, I think slaves is a bad translation, and bondservants is a good one. That being said, even if bondservants aren't the same as our modern slaves, why would Paul so flatly tell them to just obey their earthly masters? There's so much here that I think could be said, but for the sake of time and simplicity, I just want to say one thing that I hope will bring some clarity. I think that the story of the world, the story of history, the mega story, the story of stories, is the story of God's project of redemption. That is what the Bible is about. The Bible is the true story of God's project of redemption. And I think that project of redemption operates on two levels. And I think it's key to see this in order to understand, I think, what Paul is saying here. God is at work redeeming individuals and 
God is at work redeeming the world. This is the two levels. On one level, God is at work redeeming individuals. And among other things, God provides those individuals with instructions about how they should live their daily lives in a fallen and broken world. There's a sense in which we are stuck living in this world, and so we need instructions for navigating it. Our ability to change the world is real, but it is also limited. Fallen people come to recognize their need for forgiveness, for cleansing, and for redemption, and by God's grace, they find that in Jesus Christ. Then, we who are redeemed are invited to live in a new way according to God's design and intention and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. But we live that new life in a world that remains fallen and broken, in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. So on one level, God is redeeming individuals, but on another level, God is at work redeeming the world. Using redeemed individuals and even using those who reject God and yet who are created in His image to redeem and transform broken elements of our world and distorted unjust systems and structures. God made a good world, we have distorted it, and God is at work redeeming that world, making it more and more what it was supposed to be. It is because of God's grace and activity in the world and the image of God in us that we humans are able to do things like discover penicillin and invent seatbelts and abolish slavery. A venture, by the way, that is far, far, far from over. The world is not yet redeemed, but the world is being redeemed. The world today is a long way off from the world that will be when God consummates His project of redemption and ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. And yet, while the world is not yet redeemed, I am thankful that I live now and not in the 14th century. And so here's what I think is going on here with these two levels. It is because God is at work on these two levels at the same time that God has to, at times, with a heavy heart, tolerate and even regulate the brokenness of the world when giving instructions to redeemed individuals who are living in that broken world. We see another perhaps clearer example of this in Matthew chapter 19. You might recall Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees uh, about uh, marriage and divorce. And there Jesus says in verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Make no mistake, I believe it is our responsibility as God's children to be on board with God's project of redemption and to contribute to the redemptive transformation of this world. Not because God needs our help, but because He has called us to get on board with this project by His grace. And God is busy at work redeeming the fallenness of this world and its fallen, unjust institutions. But, in the meantime... His instructions don't ignore that brokenness. Instead, while it breaks God's heart that He must do so, 
he inst- his instructions expect, regretfully tolerate, and regulate fallenness and fallen institutions. When God gives us his instructions, he acknowledges the yet brokenness of the world in which we live. And therefore, he gives instructions to those of us who live amongst and must navigate that brokenness. I think an analogy here might be helpful, and I've thought long and hard about this. It's It's not a perfect analogy, but see if this makes any sense to you. Imagine that you find yourself imprisoned in some foreign country that has horrible prisons and uh, that mistreats its prisoners. And imagine also that the U.S. Embassy somehow has come to be aware of your imprisonment and is somehow granted the opportunity to speak with you. What advice do you think the representative from the U.S. government would give? I imagine that this person would say something like this. We are at work doing everything we can to secure your release. And have no fear, we will soon find a way to get you out of here. But in the meantime, to the extent that you are able, cooperate with your captors. There's some level of pragmatism to that. The world is broken. It is woefully, horrifically, tragically broken. The good news is that God is at work redeeming that broken world, and we look forward with great anticipation to the day when His project of redemption is complete, when, as Revelation 21 says, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will be with us, and we will be His people, and God Himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the the former things have passed away. But here and now, until that day, God is at work redeeming individuals and providing us with the means to live a new abundant life even in the midst of that brokenness. God is here with us, with His sleeves rolled up, knee-deep in the mess. And doing that sort of work is sometimes dirty. As God gives instructions to redeem people about how to live in a broken world, He sometimes tolerates and even regulates reality that one day shall be no more. I think Paul's instructions about slavery elsewhere give us insight into this operating at two levels things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives a blanket instruction to people, to Christians, that they should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them, essentially, that they should live as they were called. But the one exception to that is bondservants. To bondservants, Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. In the book of Philemon, Paul leverages his standing and his relationship with Philemon in order to see see to it that Onesimus, a runaway bondservant, would be fully incorporated into the church at Colossae, not as a runaway bondservant, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. Paul, while in prison, even said that if Onesimus had wronged Philemon in any way or owed him anything, that Paul himself would pay the debt. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul specifically lists enslavers, those who participate in the slave trade, 
amongst the people who are lawless and disobedient, ungodly, unholy, and profane sinners. How is it that on the one hand, Paul could say that enslavers were profane sinners, that bondservants should avail themselves of the freedom of freedom if they can gain it, that he, Paul, would use his relational clout and ostensibly limited financial resources to see to it that a bondservant would be accepted as a brother in the Lord, while on the other hand, he could say in Ephesians 6, 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. I think it's because God is at work in the world on two levels. At one level, God is, redeeming, uh, God is redeeming the world in such a way that one day the systems of bondservants will be no more. So Paul says to bondservants, if you can somehow get out of such a system, avail yourself of the opportunity. But at another level, he realizes that not everyone in this world will have that opportunity. So while this system is still in place, if you find yourself stuck, not just in a bad household, but in a culture and economic system that is unjust and exploitive, Paul says to these people that they should obey and do their work with sincerity. But that is not all that Paul has to say. He goes on to say more, and what he goes on to say to those who are stuck in these broken circumstances is good news. Look uh, again at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Now we're going to focus specifically on verse 8. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Paul says to people who are stuck in a bad circumstance, God sees your work, your work matters, and fear not, because whether or not you are rewarded by your master, you will receive reward from the Lord for the work that you have done. And it's here that I think we can transition from talking about the world of the text, the potential controversy, and to apply this text to us. First, Paul says to bondservants, to people who are stuck living in a broken, tragic, and unjust world, there is good news. God sees your work, it matters and it will be rewarded. I am confident that none of you who hears this sermon is a bondservant in the sense that Paul had in mind when he wrote this text. But I think there are many of you to whom this text is quite relevant. Some of us in this room have the good privilege of doing work that we have chosen because we're passionate about it. But to be frank, I realize that not everyone in this room has that luxury. Some of you do the work you do because you simply have to do it. It's work you do because you have to pay the bills. And if that describes you, my guess is sometimes you feel stuck doing that work. 
Sometimes you wonder if that work matters. And my guess is that whatever work you do, sometimes you are asked to do tasks that you don't like or that seem pointless. To you, Paul says, God sees your work and your work matters. And it's because of that that Paul says, we all ought to do our work sincerely with a good will as if you were working directly for the Lord. I am convinced that the way in which you do your work is just as important as the work you do. The way in which you do your work is just as important as the work you do. Imagine a world, imagine this world, a world filled with people who do their work the way that Paul describes. Don't you want to live in that world where everyone does their work in that way? You may be stuck in work that you think does not matter, but the way you do your work matters just as much as the work you do. And I think you should take heart in knowing that if you do your work as Paul describes in verses 5 through 7 here, with a sincere heart as you would for Christ, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. If you do your work that way, then regardless of what work you do, you will make a real redemptive contribution to the world. And God sees you. And whatever good you do, you will receive back from the Lord. Of course, Paul doesn't just address bond servants. He also addresses masters. Look with me at verse 9. To masters, Paul says, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I want you to notice how good and remarkable it is that Paul says that masters should do the same to bondservants. It's easy to read over that quickly, but I want you to think about what that means. It means that masters should do the same thing. It means that masters should serve their bondservants with a sincere heart as they would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. It's a remarkable thing to say to masters. Now, in the same way that I am confident that none of you who hears this sermon is a bondservant in the sense that Paul had in mind when he wrote this text, I am confident that none of you who hears this sermon is a master in the way that Paul had in mind when he wrote this text. But I think there are many of you to whom this text is quite relevant. There are people here who are in positions of authority, who have the power to either exploit or improve the lives of the people over whom you have authority. And to you, Paul says this, God sees you, And your exercise of authority matters. God sees you and your exercise of authority matters. And because of that, you should do good to those under your authority. 
and serve them, knowing that their master and yours shows no partiality to you or to them. The way that you do your work matters just as much as the work you do. And this is true whether you are subject to authority or you are an authority. Imagine a world filled with people in authority who do their work in the way that Paul describes. Don't you want to live in that world? I think there is tremendous redemptive opportunity for people who have economic authority, for business owners, entrepreneurs, managers, and executives. Good companies run and managed by people who listen to Paul's words here in Ephesians 6 provide a great good to the world. Think about the opportunity you have to improve the lives of others if you provide a good or service that contributes to the well-being of people. You provide that good or service in an honest way and in a fair way for a fair price. Imagine if you do your work and you provide good jobs, jobs with good pay and benefits and a healthy and positive work environment. Imagine the impact that that has on the world. God does not care, frankly, about the prestige of your degrees or your job title. He is not impressed by the number of commas in your salary or how well diversified your portfolio is. What God cares about is the way in which you do your work and the impact it has on people. What God cares about is the way you use those gifts of education and position and authority for God's plans and purposes. And if you have degrees and a position of authority, that means that you have a great opportunity to have redemptive impact on the world around you if you do your work sincerely, diligently, serving those subject to you as if you were serving Christ. Here's the thing. In Ephesians 6, Paul addresses two groups of people that seem to be well-defined and separate in Paul's world bondservants and masters. In Paul's world, you are one or the other. In our modern world and economy, I think it is likely that most people find themselves in something very roughly equivalent to both of these circumstances every day. And here I'll I'll talk about my example as a teacher. As a teacher, I sometimes find myself in a position of authority. I have about 90 students, and I am an authority in their lives. And the way that I treat them as a person who is in authority matters. The way I treat my, te- my students matters. The way I do my work matters. And yet, though I am at some points and in some ways a person in a position of authority, I am also subject to authority. I have bosses. And I have the good fortune, even though they're not here, I have the good fortune of saying I really do enjoy the people that I work for, but there are some times when I disagree with their instructions, when I think that the tasks that they give me are silly or pointless, that I would do it a different way. And when I find myself in that position, I should obey Paul's instructions about how to submit myself and to do my work diligently. And so as a teacher, I both have authority and am subject to authority. And my guess is, in the various ways you live your life, you find yourself occupying both those positions at different times. 
So that rather than assigning yourself to one of these two groups, I would encourage you to think about when and where you have authority and when and where you are subject to authority. We have to be people who serve well, that is, who serve sincerely, when we are under authority, and who exercise authority well, that is, for the good of others, when we have it. And we do all of this longing for the day when the Lord will consummate His project of redemption and the world is put to rights. Please pray with me. Father, I am thankful for um, the way in which uh, you are at work in this world, uh, redeeming it from the mess that we've made. Lord, once again, you would be well within your rights to leave us to suffer the natural consequences of our own decision to reject you. And yet, Lord, with patience and long-suffering, with uh, tenderness and great power, you are at work in this world redeeming it so that one day, um, Lord, the, the world will once again be what you intend it to be. Father, uh, as we live now uh, as people in a broken world, I pray that you give us um, wisdom and conviction about how to uh, be subject to authority and about how to use authority in a way that is consistent with your plans and purposes so that we might live the abundant lives that you've died for us to live. We love you and we pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.